continue worshiping together today, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the Gospel of Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning with the second verse. Let us receive together the Word of God. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, be with us now as we reflect together on your holy and your living word. Connect us and open us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Months ago, in a conversation among the staff team related to our Journey to Racial Justice initiative, an African-American member of our team asked, is the goal for us to simply become a nicer, kinder, more well-informed version of white supremacy? Or are we really trying to change things? These are important clarifying questions as we together here at Foundry move more deeply into this pivotal year as a congregation, as a denomination, and as a nation. The questions may find some response on this Transfiguration Sunday. Six days prior to the extraordinary events that Kathy read for us today from our gospel, Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen to him, that he would suffer, be rejected, killed, and then after three days, rise again. Peter didn't want to hear it, and Jesus' response was, among other things, you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. 
Jesus then goes on to speak to the disciples and to the larger crowds about what a divine thing looks like. It's this. Deny self. Take up your cross. Lose your life for Christ's sake and for the sake of the gospel, because that is the only way to truly have or save or keep your life. And six days after Jesus shares these words, he takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain to pray. And then things got weird and wondrous and scary beyond what could really be described. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet, show up and talk with Jesus, who is himself the fulfillment of both law and prophecy. Jesus' appearance changes in a dazzling display and not, by the way, in a way that makes Jesus' brown eyes blue, but in a way as amazing as if I could keep using my environmentally friendly detergent and get my whites to come out of the laundry like new fallen snow. That kind of miracle. Peter, unable to simply receive what is happening, offers a suggestion for what they need to get busy doing. And just then, out of the foggy cloud, there comes one very clear message of exactly what they should do. This is my beloved child. Listen to him. Listen. Now, one would think that such an amazing experience coupled with this clear message would have had a profound impact on those present. But it seems that listening was just as hard for the first disciples as it is for us. Because Jesus has to keep repeating himself. The text records that Jesus speaks of his suffering, death, and resurrection two more times. The disciples must not have been listening in their active listening workshop because both times, again, they completely miss the point. The first time they respond to Jesus by playing that best-selling game, Who's the greatest? And the next time around, James and John, who were up there on the mountain and witnessed the vision and heard the voice, those two ask Jesus for plumb positions in Jesus' cabinet after he wins the election. Both times, Jesus responds with the same message. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Die to self so that you can rise to a new life in God's love, a life that manifests 
in self-giving service to others. Three times this pattern plays out. Three times Jesus speaks of dying and rising. Why was it so hard for those first disciples to, to listen and to truly comprehend? Why is it so difficult for us? Well, it's often difficult to get ourselves out of the way so that God can get through to us, so that we can truly receive a voice that is not just the echo of our own voice. And then if we're able to grow quiet or still enough to receive what God is saying, the message, especially this core message from the gospel, presents its own challenge because who really wants to hear about losing yourself, being humbled, giving something up? Jesus teaching about dying to self and rising to a new life of loving service threatens the status quo of our lives. It requires change. Jesus' words about denying the self is in direct opposition to the world that tells us in every way to invest in self-help, self-defense, self-promotion. Jesus calls us to follow him, to lose the false self, and to claim our true humanity. And that challenges any notion of ourselves as either too important or too insignificant to be able to serve others or make a difference. Jesus' call to serve others is not a cozy, comfortable idea that we can accomplish by simply liking certain posts on Facebook or retweeting the pithy ideas of other people. Though in my experience, even doing that can put us in an uncomfortable position occasionally with friends or family. To really, really listen to Jesus is to hear ourselves being called out of complacency, to hear ourselves being given work to do, to acknowledge the prejudices and bigotry and defensiveness that gets in the way of our solidarity with others, our responsibility, not just to look out for number one, but to look out for the well-being of others and to sacrifice, if needed, for their sake. It is to hear a call to true solidarity with suffering, to sit with it in our own lives and with others, and to allow brokenness to lead you where it will. Jesus knew where it was leading him. And it was only after he was led there all the way to the cross and beyond that those first disciples really got the message. 
Their lives were changed forever, and through them, the world. If we really take in the message of Jesus, the proclamation of the kingdom, the good news that is gospel, we will see there is no halfway, there's no lukewarm, there's no kinda sorta in the call. It may not happen all at once. We in the Wesleyan spiritual tradition do talk about growth in holiness and going on to perfection or perfect love. After all, it's the way we think about it. But my point is that you either commit to follow, to really try to follow the Jesus revealed in the Bible or not. And Jesus was not half-hearted. Jesus wasn't kind of, sort of. Jesus was an extremist. And not the kind we may immediately associate with that word, that is, persons whose focus is exclusive and violent. Jesus was, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. On this Transfiguration Sunday, as we conclude our series infused with the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. from his letter from the Birmingham City Jail, I'm struck by Dr. King's reflections on extremism. King was responding to the white moderates about whom he lamented, and I quote, shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. The lukewarm position of the white moderates led them to call the nonviolent direct actions being done in Birmingham extreme. At first, King was disappointed about this, but upon reflection, decided he could wear that label with pride. He wrote this, and I quote, Was not Jesus an extremist for love. And he quotes Jesus, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, end quote. He goes on, was not Amos an extremist for justice? And in the words of Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? And then Paul, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Quoting Luther, here I stand, I can do no otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan said, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. 
King goes on, and Abraham Lincoln said, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. King says, and Thomas Jefferson, who said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. MLK goes on. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene, he writes, on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, King writes, the South, the nation, and the world, perhaps they are in dire need of creative extremists. End quote. I believe that the nation and world and the church are in dire need of creative extremists. The story that we receive from the gospel today reveals the vision given to a handful of disciples long ago. And the vision wasn't a change in Jesus, but a change in what the disciples perceived in Jesus. Perhaps we might think of it as a transfiguration of their vision, a revelation, an unveiling of more of Jesus' identity. And it's a terrifying, wonderful on revelation of a human life completely one with God and lit from within with all the gifts and power of spirit. It's an extreme moment whose message is clear. This is my beloved child. Listen. Listen to him. And listen not in a one in one ear and out the other kind of way, not listen in a way that leaves you cozy in the status quo of my way and right away and doing only what works for me. Rather, listen and truly receive, take in the message and the vision of life infused with self-giving love and justice and humility and compassion and courage because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to listen to Jesus, because that is what the world needs. It's what our shredded relationships and republic need. It's what we ourselves need. Spiritual writer Frederick Beekner says, quote, 
to journey for the sake of saving our own lives is little by little to cease to live in any sense that really matters even to ourselves because it's only by journeying for the world's sake even when the world bores and sickens and scares you half to death that little by little we start to come alive. That is what we are all asked to do today. To listen to the one who reveals to us how to participate in the work of new creation, to come alive, to live. God's law reveals how to live together in peace with justice so that all receive the dignity and provision of life in God's kingdom. God's prophets reveal a vision toward which we are always working, a vision which warns of the obstacles to our getting there. The call for us to practice the law and to align with the prophetic vision in our lives and communities requires real transformation. Again, to the question where we began, is the goal for us to simply become a nicer, kinder, more well-informed version of white supremacy? That would be like a people who take the powerful prophetic words of Martin Luther King Jr. and put them on refrigerator magnets or t-shirts, but don't write the words on their hearts. That would be a lukewarm reception of what spirit is saying that allows for gaslighting and denial and rationalizations. The goal is not to be more well-informed on the issue. The goal is transfiguration, creative extremism. The goal is to be extremists for love, extremists for the extension of justice. The goal is a more truly human world scrubbed of the stains of white supremacy and economic injustice and environmental destruction and every form of prejudice and tribal violence. Are you willing to go up the proverbial mountain with Jesus to pray for the grace to truly receive the voice of Christ in the words of scripture, in the witness of the saints past and present, in the voices of those around us who may be saying things hard to hear? Are you willing to truly receive the voice of Christ and to be open to the particular ways God is speaking, calling, acting in your life today, ways that will really change you? If so, listen with a humble heart, a quiet mind, an open door, and be ready 
to step back onto the journey from that place of revelation and transfiguration to wherever the path and God's love leads. It won't be simple or easy. That is certain. But what is even more certain still is that beloved community and life deep and true awaits. Let us pray. Oh God, for the ways that you accompany us, beckon us, and give us the capacity to receive what you are saying and to be changed by your holy and living word. We say thank you. Guide us on the way and may our study and reflection from these past weeks be written on our hearts and take concrete shape in our priorities and actions as you continue to move among us for the sake of racial justice and equity for the cause of right and compassion, for the mending of your beloved creation. We pray all of these things, trusting in you and in the name of Jesus, who is our way. Amen. Thank you.